Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. This morning I want to talk about hope. Uh, hope is infectious. Some might say it's dangerous. Um, hope is also revolutionary. Um, hope can be like dynamite. Uh, it starts off slow, but if it gathers enough momentum, it can explode. I want to think about the song, It's Coming Home. This is, this is an image that would have worked better about six weeks ago, but <laughs> I couldn't be bothered to change it. I thought it was funny as well. Uh, but think about that song in England, not just as a song, but as an idea. Um, it's well and truly, much to my dismay, made it into the psyche of English culture and English football fans everywhere prior to this tournament. But it also started because of the hope before the first ball was kicked. If you remember back to when Obama was running for presidency in the US, the iconic poster he used was his face with hope written beneath it. He knew that he represented something much bigger than just being president. He represented a shift in African-American representation and a seismic shift in American history. He showed the world that it can be different. And today we're going to talk about Mary's Magnificat in Luke 1, which is a song of hope and of revolution for every one of us and for the world. So some context for our passage today might sound slightly familiar. Let me just wrestle with my pages. The world is about to take a major course correction from here on in. Approximately nine months from now, Jesus is going to be born. The angel Gabriel has appeared to a priest named Zechariah, who is married to Elizabeth. And it says in Luke 1, verse 6, both were righteous in the sight of God. However, they've struggled to conceive their entire lives and felt that their time had passed. Gabriel tells Zechariah that his wife is going to conceive. Zechariah is fairly confused by this and reminds Gabriel that they're both past their prime and haven't had any success up to this point. Zechariah hasn't really grasped who he's chatting with. Gabriel silences Zechariah and tells him that he won't speak again until this promise is fulfilled. Finally, Elizabeth becomes pregnant with a baby who will become John the Baptist, and Zechariah can speak once again. I imagine that first conversation between Zechariah and Elizabeth was probably pretty weird. And then there's Mary. Mary's a poor, young village girl, about to be married to Joseph when the angel Gabriel appears to her as well and tells her she's been chosen by God to give birth to his son, and this will happen through the Holy Spirit. Mary is a teenager, about to be married, and she's now being told she's going to give birth to a son that won't be her husband's, and so will be out of wedlock. He also tells her that her cousin Elizabeth is now in her sixth month of pregnancy. So Mary takes off to see Elizabeth because she's got to see this for herself. Her faith in God has given her hope, so much so that it spurs her into action. Other people probably wouldn't have gone. Elizabeth is old, barren, and lives far away. Mary also, as of right now, has enough to be getting on with from her end, that a trip to see Elizabeth could have probably have waited. Someone of lesser faith would have left it because they couldn't see further than the world around them. They may struggle to comprehend the idea of God moving and being part of a greater plan much bigger than what they can see right in front of them. Faith creates hope, which influences our behaviour and our actions. 
Mary arrives and she calls out a greeting to Elizabeth. This causes the baby in Elizabeth's womb to wriggle with joy as Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit just by Mary being in her vicinity. This causes Elizabeth to shout out. So if you want to turn with me to Luke chapter 1, verses 42, and we'll read through to 45. So verse 42. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, This is Elizabeth to Mary. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favoured that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. God honours Mary's faith. Her submission to his plan gives her this moment with Elizabeth. And this is all the confirmation Mary needs. And she then bursts into her song, which has become to be known as the Magnificat which we'll read through now. So this is verses 46 to 56 of Luke 1. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. So I'm going to break this song down into two parts. The first is Mary accepting and celebrating her position that she's now come to see in God's plan. And the second is that Jesus' birth is going to bring about a moral and social revolution. And the first part is verses 46 to 50, which I will read once more. So my soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me, Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. What an incredible snapshot into this life-changing moment in Mary's life. This is Mary processing her new position. It's the anxieties and fears all rushing out in worship to God as her place in his plan finally comes into focus. And she starts her song looking at herself She celebrates God, showing mercy on her, and essentially asks the question, why me? I feel like this is usually a question we ask ourselves when things aren't going well. You know when something's literally just happened and it's either the worst possible outcome or it's so unexpected, you just start praying for time to reverse so you can redo the last 30 seconds and make a slightly better decision. And I'll give you an idea of the kind of thing I'm thinking about. When I was about six, I was in the back garden playing, playing lightsabers. And naturally, I decided instead of using toy lightsabers, which were in the house, I decided to use two, not one, but two hockey sticks. And I'm swinging them around, doing my best Yoda impression. I'm definitely doing the sounds as well. 
So I'm playing lightsabers, doing the sounds, killing all sorts of stormtroopers, probably Darth Vader as well. And then it starts to rain. So obviously I just keep playing because rain gives it atmosphere. Any fake lightsaber fight looks better in the rain. And I'm getting wet. The hockey sticks are getting wet. And this is the moment in the story that I really wish that I could have gone back to. Uh, the hockey sticks get so wet that one of them slips out of my hand as I'm doing this spin move. And the stick leaves my hand and flies through the air like a spear and shatters the kitchen window. And my mum is stood in the kitchen with my brother, who's about three at the time, completely unharmed, but surrounded by glass. And it was one of those things that I stood there completely still as I watched this happen in slow motion as the hockey stick went through the window. So naturally, the best way to deal with this is I break into tears. And I start running towards the kitchen covered in glass. And I think the tears are a bit of a physical representation of please, 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 let me teleport back 30 seconds. Why God? Why me? Um, that tends to be why we fairly self-centered and self-concerned beings ask this question of why me? Why is the world so cruel to me when I'm the center of my own world? Yet when things are going well, we almost act like we deserve it. And we are preached this as well. We're preached this societal message of go get your own, only look after number one. Of course, you deserve this. But Mary's taking a different approach. In verse, verses 46 to 48, Mary says, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Saviour, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. Mary is aware of her humble state, but she's not saying that in a little old me kind of way. She's saying, you are the God of the heavens and the earth. You deserve it all. You can have it all. Yet you've picked me. If you wanted your son to be born on this earth, you could give him riches, a big house, a pool, a car. His mum could be one of the rich girls from Jerusalem, maybe even one who's actually married. Uh, and not this poor village girl who's not quite married and will be so disgraced for having a son out of wedlock so much so that it almost scares her fiancé, Joseph, off. On top of that, his auntie, up until this point, was barren. She and her husband were looked down upon because they couldn't conceive. This son of yours, God, is going to have to shatter some serious preconceived ideas about who he is, who his family are, if he's going to get anywhere in life. But immediately following this is the faith and hope that has been cemented in her heart. Mary says, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. And that is a beautifully human thing that God allows us to do, to be anxious and concerned, yet full of faith and hope all at once. God doesn't ask us to have it all together all of the time. He knows our hearts, so we can't try and hide our insecurity or concern from him. God, I am stressed, but you are good, and I trust your plan. God, my life feels like it's falling apart, but I thank you that you love me and are for me. One of my great friends from Newcastle, called Josh, I'll shout him out because he might listen to this. Uh, he will do now that I've called him out. Um, Josh helped me move down from Newcastle to Manchester uh, in summer 2021, and uh, we packed my whole life uh, into the van, and uh, he drove us down. And once we moved it all down, he wanted to pray with Rosie and I before, before he left, uh, and he kept getting this phrase, which was, if God is for you, why would he stop now? And for Rosie and I, this has kind of become our go-to when things are stressful or busy or feel out of control. But it should also be our go-to when things are great, fun, and totally in control as well. 
This should be all of our go-to sayings all of the time. If God is for you, why would he stop now? Mary is aware of what she's being called to, and she knows everyone for the rest of time will know her name and call her blessed. But she's actually got no idea what that's going to look like. But she knows she's been blessed because the Mighty One has done great things for her. Mary surrendered any worldly identity to God. If we want to truly know him as well, then we have to be disciplined in doing the same every day. Give him it all, good or bad, proud or shameful, exciting or boring. God is for us far beyond anything this world can give us. So let's put him before anything in this world by giving it all to him. So Mary's faith in this first four verses has bred hope internally, which now transforms into an external change. As her song continues, she begins to celebrate the things she knows Jesus will bring because she knows that this plan is much bigger than her and that Jesus will bring revolution. So I'm just going to reread 51, verses 51 to 55, just to recap. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary is speaking in the past tense about what Jesus is going to do. She uses the phrase, he has a lot. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. Mary's speaking in the past tense, and this is what's called prophetic aorist, which is something I learned. Uh, it is when prophets have seen something that, that, that will take place in the future, but they're so confident they speak of it as if it's already happened. So again, maybe a couple of weeks ago, you were chanting, it's already home. I'm enjoying this too much. Um, so <laughs> but maybe that was too soon. Mary also know because it's been prophesied many times in the Old Testament. She's a Jewish girl, so she'll have been brought up exposed in some form to the scriptures. Such as 2 Samuel 7, God speaks to David and says, When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And in Isaiah 9, 6-7, it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Mary is simply celebrating the fact that this battle is already won. Since the fall back in Genesis, God has had a plan for his people, and this is that plan coming into full effect. Therefore, change is coming, and it's inevitable and unstoppable. And during the 60s, uh, in the midst of the civil rights marches, there was a singer named Sam Cooke. Uh, he was very successful singing love songs and rhythm and blues, um, but he was also very successful with a major white audience. Um, and so the story goes that uh, at the height of his fame, he gets turned away from an all-white motel, and he has this realisation that being a successful singer wasn't enough to save him from being racially profiled and oppressed. So he writes this song based on the old hymns uh, that slaves would sing in the cotton fields. And the hook of that is, I'm not going to sing it, it's been a long, long time coming, but I know a change is going to come. 
In this case, there's an acceptance of a bigger plan. Sam Cooke realizes that he's not an individual, he's part of a bigger thing, a bigger movement of change. And this is bigger than me, and it's bigger than the collective we. Also the acceptance that there's a hope in a greater justice that wills people to effect change. We may not be alive long enough to see the fullness of that change, but we can live in the confidence the same way Mary is when she sings in verses 52 and 53, he has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. A social revolution happens when lots of people see the bigger vision, deal with that inside themselves, and then change their behavior to incite change. It starts with us, and it starts with baby steps. And I think that a social revolution is intertwined with the moral revolution. Like Mary's song, it begins with her bringing herself before God and allowing him to rule and work in her life. It's about laying your life down at his feet and allowing him to work in you first and foremost. For Christians, revolution is and should be people coming to know Jesus. It's people from all over the world learning that Jesus loves them so much that he, that he died for them, no matter who they are. It's people from all walks of life getting a glimmer of the love he has for them. It's seeing an injustice or something that doesn't sit right with you and acting in a way to be a part of the change you want to see. That's the moral and the social intertwining. It's taking the smallest of stands every day to show the love of Jesus in some form. And in a society that lives on apathy, that is quite radical. I've seen a statistic recently in The Guardian, which maybe only cements what some of us see around us. But for the first time, according to an England and Wales census, only 37% of the population would consider themselves Christian with a significant increase in no affinity to any faith at all. And slightly more specific, the Northern Gospel Project shared a stat that only about 4% of Manchester's populations go to church. You see stats like that and can think, like I did, oh my goodness, church is really struggling here. Where do we fit in a society that's constantly changing? But CCM baptised 12 people this year from all walks of life. Think about how many people you meet who wander through once and never come back. Think about all the people who come through and stay. And we are one church in hundreds in Manchester. And those 12 that we baptised and those people that come through the door are baby steps in pushing back, being revolutionary. And we are only one part in a wider movement that will also be seeing those baby steps happening all the time. The gospel thrives when it looks like it's on its back foot. Because like Mary is aware of, He's already done the things he's coming to do. The battle is already won. So to finish, what does revolution look like for you? Who is it or what people group do you want to see revolutionised through the gospel? Maybe it was like Tim, who has a heart for students. Maybe it's Rosie and Spanish speakers. It also doesn't have to be one big group. Maybe it's a friend, a family member. Maybe you've got a list of people you're praying for. For me personally, my heart is for uh, creatives, I love all the arty people that I went to uni with. And I also love meeting people on the basketball court in places like Platfields and the conversations that can come from that. No matter who or what it is, it is revolutionary. It doesn't have to be massive. The gospel needs bodies in the trenches spreading hope on the daily through the smallest of acts. With a mind and a heart that is planted in God's vision for his people. Paul, in his letters time and time again, shouts the praises of God and the gospel, and he does a lot of it from a jail cell. Paul gets ripped from the game, and his role in inciting change went from being highly mobile and constantly in the thick of the action to being sat on the bench.
In his writing to the Corinthians, he says, I planted it, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. Revolution begins in hope. But I often think that we can get a bit lost in that idea because the idea is that revolution has to be massive and that we almost do great feats. But like I've said, I really don't think that's the case. Believing in Jesus and surrendering every day to him is revolutionary in the eyes of this world. This obedience of praying, reading your Bible and sharing your mundane routine with him is what it's all about. This is what influences our behavior and our actions and people notice. Uh, C.S. Lewis said this, in social life, you'll never make a good impression on other people until you stop thinking what sort of good impression you want to make. That principle runs all through life, from the top to the bottom. Give up yourself and you'll find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, submit with every fiber of your being and you'll find eternal life. Look for Christ and you'll get him. And with him, everything else thrown in. If the band like to come back up as we finish, just as Maddie makes a tea at the back. <laughs> Legend. Uh, yeah, this is the gift of this season. This is the gift that we always talk about. But this gift isn't just for this season. It's all year round. This is the gift that Mary is singing about. This is the gift that Jesus gave us when he died on the cross for us. This is also the gift that we can share with anyone at any time. And in Colossians 1, 26 to 27, Paul says, The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. I'd love for us all just to reflect and think about where does God want me? What baby steps can I be taking? Or maybe you're still at the start of this song. Maybe you feel like Mary in those first few lines and it's more internal for you, a blend of anxiety and faith. Either is great because God works in either.